0: Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by the Low Residency MFA at the University of California, Riverside, Palm Desert. What do Rob Robert, Emily Rapp, Gina Frangello, Todd Goldberg, David L. Ulin, and Elizabeth Crane have in common? Well, other than being guests on this program, they're part of the faculty of the hottest MFA in the country, offering degrees in fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and screenwriting. The Low Residency MFA at UCR Palm Desert focuses... On students becoming professional writers, actually selling their books and movies and TV shows, not just talking about it. More than an MFA, the low residency MFA at UC Riverside is an entry point into a life in the arts. Plus, the two 10-day residencies are held at a resort and spa in Palm Desert, California, which, let's face it, isn't a bad way to attend grad school. For more information, visit palmdesertmfa.ucr.edu or email PalmDesertMFA@ucr. at UCR Dot edu. This is a graduate school in Palm Desert California where you can write a book, write a TV show, write a movie, make some art, go and study there. Oh my God.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every
0: stupid thing that a writer could do I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jared West, well? struggle, you know. It was
1: incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just All one right, time. everybody, here we go again. <laughs> right. This is
0: it. This is other people. This is something that continues to happen. This is getting a little bit out of hand. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California, for this the 400th episode of the Other People podcast. That's right, uh, 400 episodes. I don't even know what to say about that. Uh, Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm sorry. I apologize. (laughs) I never meant for this to happen. But, uh, you you know, sometimes in life, you guys, four and a half years go by, and you look up, and you've made 400 uh, podcasts. Obviously, it takes a village. This never would have happened without the willing participation of a lot of people, namely my guests, the writers who appear on this show along with a few editors and agents and some screenwriters, uh, all of whom have been kind enough to sit down and spend an hour talking with me. Uh, Without them, no show. And of course, it doesn't happen without you guys, my listeners, the people who uh, tune in every week, who support this show, who subscribe to Premium. uh, You know, as I like to say, you guys are the only thing preventing this from being an incredibly pitiful undertaking. Because let's face it, Without uh, listeners, I'm just a middle-aged guy sitting in his garage, either freezing his ass off or trying not to get stung by hornets while pretending to have a radio show. It sounds awful when I say it like that. <laughs> anyway, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, I, can't, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I know it's been a couple of weeks since the last episode. I know that's a little bit unusual. For those of you who did listen to episode 399 and uh, listen to the monologue, you are aware of the fact that my wife, Carrie and I, uh, we have had some health issues come up, uh, with our son river, who's almost seven months uh, old. And, uh, I can't remember what I told you. And I can't remember where we were in the process when I did that monologue. Uh, it's all kind of a blur to me. So I apologize if this is repetitive, but basically, uh, where we are right now is, uh, we think that he may have had a prenatal stroke. And that's what the neurologist thinks. And, um, We've got to do some tests the truth is that we don't know a lot we've got to do some tests we've got to go through a process this stuff takes some time we know that he's having a motor delay in his left arm it's not working properly we have to go in for an mri uh, tomorrow which i'm kind of dreading but we've got to do it because uh, doctors need a picture of his brain and his spine so they can figure out what's going on and uh, we've already got him started on physical therapy he's a trooper he's a very happy baby And, uh, yeah, that's where things are. So uh, I want to thank everybody for the kind words. I got a lot of nice emails and tweets and so on. really appreciate that. Uh, Second, uh, my apologies if, I don't know. I don't even know if I should apologize. I'm kind of debating uh, this internally. But if it seemed too maudlin for me to bring this up in episode 399, I know uh, my wife and I have been through all sorts of craziness trying to have a second child. And I've talked about that. And now we've had one. And now there's more difficulty and uh, I just don't want to uh, make things unbearable by sharing all of this. But, uh, at the same time, uh, you know, I do the monologue. I tell you what's going on in my life and this is obviously central. And when something like this happens, it's hard to sit down in front of a microphone and not, uh, talk about it. It feels artificial somehow. So I don't want to dwell and I won't dwell, but I am going to keep you updated. Uh, in bits and pieces, as things progress, and uh you know aside from that, and you know again, i don't want it to be maudlin i don't want to play. maybe i should play, <laughs> I should play sad music. let me play some sad music uh i This is the last thing i 'll say about this stuff today uh I have been thinking of Curtis Mayfield, the musician, Superfly, one of my favorite musicians, and uh, a guy who had uh, a lot of wisdom and became a paraplegic uh due to a tragic accident later in his life and i'm going to be paraphrasing horribly i don't remember where i read this or exactly what was said or how it exactly materialized but i do remember that someone either asked curtis mayfield or he asked himself why me or why you you know do you ever ask yourself why me why did this horrible accident have to happen to me and curtis mayfield's response uh was well why not me So it can be very easy when something bad happens in life or something, you know, uh, happens health-wise with a loved one to, you know, fall into uh, despair or to start spiraling and asking, well, why? why me? Why us? Well, you know what? We're people. We're human beings on earth. This stuff happens. Why not us? It's going to happen to all of us eventually in some form. Nobody gets out clean. Why me? Why not me? And then beyond that, it's really not about me. It's not happening to me specifically. It's happening to my son. So as I'm sitting there saying to myself, why me? Uh, I can sort of, be, uh, I can sort of uh, lose sight of what's actually happening. It's happening to him. And my job isn't uh, to get self-focused. It's to take care of him and to help him out as much as I can and to make sure that he gets the best care that he possibly can get and that he can heal. a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So anyway, uh, episode 400. Very excited about it. Can't believe that there are now 400 of these things out there in the internet somewhere. Festering. And uh, I just couldn't be more pleased to have Alexander Chee as my guest for this episode. His new novel is called The Queen of the Night. It's available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It is uh, already, I think, in its fifth printing. It's a great success story in publishing, and uh, you might have seen Alex the other night on Late Night with Seth Myers. Did you see that? He was there, and now he's here. <laughs> uh, the Queen of the Night is also... The official February pick for the Nervous Breakdown book club. The Nervous Breakdown, for those of you not aware, is my official, uh, or my official, it's my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own uh, book club, which you can sign up for. For more information, go to the nervousbreakdown.com, click on book club in the menu bar. I recommend that. So, uh, again, very excited to have Alexander Chi here as my 400th guest. I've known him uh, mostly from a distance in the way that writers often know one another in the modern uh, age. Uh, but we have met before. He was an editor for a spell in the fiction section at the Nervous Breakdown. And uh, I know that he has been working on the Queen of the Night for many years, and it makes it uh, kind of doubly exciting to, to when you know somebody and you know how hard they've been working and how long they've been working on a project to see that project come to fruition and to see it have success. So uh, without any further ado, here is episode 400, my conversation with Alexander Chi, and his new novel, One More Time, is called The Queen of the Night. So this is a book that
1: 15 years in the making? Well, I mean, 15 years since it probably... 15 years since my last book. I spent a couple of years not writing it. Okay. Not writing... I, I was writing other things, and... Like then, ju- journalism, or no? I was I was working on two other books that I was sure were the next books. Ah, uh, okay. And and then I sent a a piece of it off to uh, this special issue of the Hartford Current that was edited by a guy named Dave Daly, who's now at Salon. Oh, right. Yeah. And you know, at the time, he was an up and coming editor, and he was doing a fiction issue of the Hartford current, a supplement. And he said, Do you have anything in a drawer? you know, like fifteen hundred words. And I thought about it and I thought, Oh, I got stuff in drawers. <laughs> I've got so much stuff in drawers. <laughs> yeah, so I so I went in and took a look and you know, I had I had, had this idea for the novel back in nineteen ninety nine and then I put it aside in probably two thousand two Two thousand one, I was angry at it because I thought of it as a spoiler. You know, I had I had Edinburgh, my first novel on submission, and publishers were asking what the second novel would be, so I had supplied a two paragraph synopsis for something that I had been kind of thinking about whimsically called the Queen of the Night and that you had the title that early oh yeah i had the title right away okay and, and actually I, I usually do um i i don't know why it's a strange thing it's a it's it's a focusing tool um
0: but i think that's i mean some writers get that it's like starts with the title or it starts with the character's name or something you know yeah something, something to like grab that. onto
1: and i also i often get a scene that's right near the end but that is not the end I can say that now, having finished two novels.
0: <laughs> Is that good to get one that's near the end but that's not the end? I guess it's better than having nothing.
1: I I guess. I don't I mean, I don't know if it's good or not, it's just kind of how my brain works. It's a sort of place that I shoot for, I guess, and then and then I and then I know the rest.
0: Well no, but I think know. it's like I'm I'm always amazed when I hear writers say that, you know, I, I just had a kernel, I had a character, I just started like, you know, day yeah. by day making it up as I went along without having any concept of where the end was, that always amazes me because I think you have to have at least some like loose idea of what the target is that you're headed towards,
1: but not everybody, you know, not everybody needs that. Correct. I think that is exactly, you know, but I think so much of being a writer is trying to figure out, you know, what kind of a writer are you? Like, what's your best time of day to work? Do you need to plan out in advance or do you need to be spontaneous? Do you, need, uh, coffee in the morning or does coffee destroy you and turn you into an, an internet addict?
0: <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. What, so, <laughs> what kind of writer are you?
1: I am. It's funny. If I can, I like to get up at 5am. Oh wow. And work. That's my favorite. It's sort of, it's almost like a sneak attack on the day or something. It's, it's like, some childish idea of escape.
0: It's kind of a holy time, if that's the right adjective. I mean, it's great, but like pre-dawn, that quiet.
1: Yeah, I think there's, you know, when I was a kid, I loved, I loved it when no one knew where I was. That was my favorite thing. And that was a terrifying time for my mom.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, that's my favorite thing now. My children are terrified.
1: (laughs) And, uh, and I think, That's kind of what it feels... It's sort of that same feeling that I used to get as a kid. I have a little bit of that fursone of excitement, that feeling that everyone else is asleep and they're just not... They don't need anything from me, you know?
0: Yeah. So is that how most of this book was written?
1: A lot of it was written... Actually, obsessionally. I think, you know, one of the things that I had to learn with writing this book was how to just work like a normal person. I kept... Wanting to be done before I was done, hmm. and so it's there's a line in a new essay that I have out now called "How to Write an Autobiographical Novel," and the line is something like "the boy who the man who cried novel." Um, it's sort of based on that time.
0: Yeah. Well, no, I totally get that. That what is that? It's like this, this uh. Nervous energy, or this—I just want it out of me. I want it done. I want to hold it. I want uh, to—you know what I'm saying? I want it externalized. And you you can sort of feel yourself rushing. Is that what you were talking about?
1: Well, I think it's also partly that I just was. There was there was so much that I was doing. I think even even now, I think I'm just beginning to be aware of just exactly what is in the book in a strange way, Mm. like which is to say now that I'm seeing all people's reactions to it and tell me what my book's about (laughs) (laughs) kind of, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's sort of a, it's a strange thing. You know, you're creating a country you'll never visit when you write a novel or when you write a book because you'll never have the experience of it that other people will. And so it's, it's a, once you're done with it, you you don't even know how to think about what's in there because you you've known it so well in some ways you've known it so well that you don't know it at all anymore which sounds like that old cliche but I think it's really true.
0: And you said earlier that you were angry at this book, and like I, I don't right. know if I... so.
1: The reason why is that all the publishers thought that that the Queen of the Night was going to be so successful that I should write that first, and I suppose. <laughs> the novel's current success is—is uh, there revenge on me? Because uh, at the time I thought, how do you know this book is going to be any good? You don't know. I haven't written it, and I just—I thought of it as a—I thought of it as a fool's game. I—I I read something recently by this poor guy who—he just published his first novel. He's been writing for years, and he's had novels rejected for years, and—and then—and then he got leukemia. Ugh. Um, this is a piece on salon and and he just had his first novel accepted for publication It's coming out. And, but he almost died trying to do it and I like that was what I did not want. I did not want to be that guy. So I fought really hard to try to publish the one that I had already written. And you know, I don't think that there were necessarily any mistakes in that. So wait, you had you published Edinburgh. yeah, and
0: then you had a second book already written.
1: No. No. No, that's the whole point, really, was that this other book that they were so excited about was not written. Ah. I just had, like, I had a two-paragraph synopsis. I had maybe 15 pages, 30 pages of it. You know, I don't even really remember. When I went for it in the drawer, there were only a few sections that I could have reasonably sent off to Dave Daly at the time, and and the one that I sent is the section that's now, it's sort of near... It's near the, the end of the first quarter of the book. I'd say, it's the scene where she buries her mother and then, and then leaves the farm after her family dies. So,
0: okay. So you finally settle down. You finally come to terms at some point that this is the book you're going to sit down to write. And,
1: <laughs> well, so the Dave published that, and yeah. when I and when I, sent it off to him, I I remember, I was suddenly so anxious that it be liked, that he like it. After all that resentment of it as an idea for so long, that kind of surprised me. And I thought, oh, you actually really care about this idea. Like, I paid attention to that feeling. And then I sent it off to my agent. I hadn't sort of told her about this (laughs) this little episode. And, uh, you know, I knew that that was a mistake, that I should alert her that I had done this. So she said, "You know, send it to me." So I sent it to her, and and she called me up. She didn't even write back by email. She just called me up on the phone and said, "Talk to me about this." So that's a
0: good sign. Yeah, right? it is.
1: I suppose. I mean, it's you, you want to think that you're aloof to that kind of excitement, and et cetera. But I think, you know, you're not. And oh. she liked the other ideas, but this was the one. That, and she's, and she has stayed, you know, that excitement has stayed for all the years. Like she's been.
0: And who's your agent?
1: Jin Okay. Uh, at, at Wiley. She, she doesn't really like having an internet presence, so I won't say too much more about it. Right, (laughs) right. People don't, don't
0: start emailing her out of the blue.
1: And well, and also don't email me asking to get. Right. uh, Uh. Introduced. So,
0: okay. So, uh, a 15 year span of time with a couple years off in between. Getting up at five a.m. Uh, most of the time. Well, D- did did you ever um, have did you ever have uh, periods where you were ready to scrap it or you thought this? Oh, is- sure, yeah. Well,
1: Many. I mean, I think I was, I was often prepared to throw the whole thing away, and in fact, I kept throwing it away during the first years of writing it. But throwing it away in the sense that I would, so I like, I wrote ninety pages and then I thought, eh, that's not really it. And then I wrote another 90 pages and again thought, this is wrong. And then I wrote 75 pages. And then I looked and I had, I was keeping this file that I called like the chop bag where like things that I had chopped out of the manuscript, I would put in this file. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the section that I thought of as the novel, that file was 75 pages and the chop bag was like, 335 pages, I thought
0: you were going to say like (laughs) (laughs) 6,400,
1: but it was, I was like, oh, so you have like a whole novel in there that you've kind of thrown away. So I pulled it out and began looking at it. And then I realized that there was some weird way in which I had needed to write each of these different sections as if the others didn't exist. It was very strange. Um, but I, I just, I understood that the the idea was across those identities, as it were.
0: It's, yeah. you know, writing, it makes me think of, you know, writing a novel. H- how often is it ever a clean process? You know, someone sits down, starts writing the beginning, finishes at the end. It's, uh, it's, I hear this over and over again. People amassing these huge files, thinking it's, you know, nothing, trashing it, picking it back up, breaking it apart, reassembling it starting over from scratch you know what i'm saying that the, it, right. that's the way that it goes that's yeah. the, that's the work that's
1: how it works i mean i think there's something edinburgh was a little bit the same in the sense that what happened with edinburgh my first novel was that i i was moving i was leaving iowa after graduating and i found all these different fragments and i thought i had a kind of a just a little prickle at the back of my head where i was like there's some sort of weird thread that connects them so i jokingly put them all in a binder and i said when we get to new york tell me what you are and and then when i opened it up in new york after you know unpacking my stuff i could see the connection in between all of those pieces And i guess there was some way that that fragmentation also worked with with this just in a different sort of process
0: well yeah it's i mean you talk about having to be patient you talk about um being anxious to have a book done, getting frustrated with a book, all these different things. Uh, it Sometimes time is just a, a super key ingredient. You have to be willing to sit through all that time and to let whatever is happening narratively in the book uh, get worked on by your subconscious. Like It's sort of mysterious, but like one day you can be looking at those pages, Damn. have no idea what the thread is, and then you move to New York, you open it up after some time away, and suddenly it's all there. Like What is that?
1: I'm remembering something I used to say uh, in like 2008, where I'd say sometimes it's a ballet, sometimes it's a clog dance. <laughs> you're just, you open, it and you're like, "Oh my god, it's beautiful," and then you open it again, and you're like, "What the?" I fuck misspelled. Did I? Yeah, yeah like,
0: I misspelled my own name. Like, what? Um,
1: yeah, it's I, you know, part of it is I mean, nothing against cloggers, by the way. <laughs> They're comfortable shoes. <laughs> right,
0: like, <laughs> Utilitarian.
1: Um, I, I guess the you know the. So, patience is part of it. I didn't... I mean, I wasn't always getting up at 5 a.m. Sometimes I was staying up really late. And so, sometimes it was... I I needed to regularize my process, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And that eventually did happen. And now I'm more uh, aware of how that works for me, you know. So, you know, I the new novel I'm working on, uh, I started... I went back to notebooks and just the commitment to write uh, for an hour and a half to an, to two hours each day mm-hmm. no matter what but to just always pick the same time write by hand write in pen and then when the time was up to stop and go and do the other things because I you know I have a lot of projects that I'm also doing in addition to writing like most, most Americans, it's about mul- multiple revenue streams, sure. as they call it, which, i.e. all of my gigs. And so I can't just, I can't, uh, until I sell a new book, I can't just, you know, work on it all day and night like I, like I did for a while, because I think there was a, there was a lot of guilt that I felt once I was late. I just felt constantly guilty about being late. How late were you? <laughs> the original. <laughs> Sorry, the original contract said that the the manuscript was due 2006. So what
0: a eight Enough. years, <laughs> what 10 years. Just a no decade. biggie. <laughs> <laughs> What's well, a decade in the grand scheme of things? So, but you know, I'll 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 say this and you can agree or disagree. I okay. think you'll probably agree. It's better to get it right or to do the very best you can possibly do than to rush something out into the world to meet some arbitrary deadline, right?
1: I think that's true. I think, you know, I, I say this to my students a lot. The only thing that protects you is that you did your best and that you did it the way that you wanted to. Um, because if you if you don't and you fail, then it's it's like two times the failure, right? You know. But if you if you at least did it the way you wanted it to, the way that you you felt was that honoring that initial spirit or what have you then then if it fails at least you can own that failure and you're like okay i and you I did screwed up. and you did every draft yeah
0: you 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 know every sentence you worked every word right. you looked at you know you you didn't skip any steps because i think if you have to look back on a book and feel like you rushed it or that you didn't do your due diligence that's maybe more painful than even the book, you know, not finding as many readers as you wished it would, or not getting the review coverage or whatever, you know, it's like that feeling I think is, is worse to have. Yeah. Because it's on you, but you it didn't, really is yeah. but you didn't have that. You spent the time, you got the book done. Are you, I mean, I'm assuming you're satisfied with what's out there
1: now. <laughs> yes. I found a few things that I'm going to fix, but they're very tiny. Just like, Tiny things. Well, and with with
0: a a, a historical fiction, I would imagine that little tiny details are more likely to need fixing because there's so much research involved. There's deep period detail that you have to get right. It seems like there's more opportunity for those kinds of uh, mistakes to crop up.
1: Well, sure. I think I should, I should say because of the stakes, I did have the manuscript vetted by uh, two opera singers and... (laughs) <laughs> two historians who specialize in the period, so that I could remove as many of the anachronisms and mistakes as possible. Smart. And the are these people? A, are
0: these people that you knew, or are these people you had to go find? Do you just have like two opera singers and two historians
1: of the period in your in your <laughs> arsenal of friends? I I guess you could say I cultivated them. Okay, I think you know the. But the thing that I I probably. Uh, the thing that has surprised me with some of the reviews is, I always imagine being chastised for not doing enough research. I never imagine being, sort of, I wouldn't call it chastised exactly, but there's a kind of a kind of shadiness around having done all the research. Like, oh, look how well researched this is, and I'm just like, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> you, you were, so you were just always going to complain about something, right? You know. He um, did his homework right. So there's actually there was one reviewer who managed to catch two things. One I would one I would challenge as the mistake of the source material, not my mistake. So he he said, well, you know, he gets a ballet position wrong, and it, it's true that I did not have a ballerina read the novel. So that, well, you didn't ask me, Alex. <laughs> yeah, right. so. um, and the and then the second one. Second was, he was sort of, he was making fun of uh, the idea that the Seine might be a place that people went because it smelled so badly, but I just thought, like, a a lot of Paris smelled badly. That was kind of one of the things that, like, it it all smelled so badly that, like, why would you remark on it? You would never, you you were just used to it. You know, that's... Like
0: Montmartre back in those days was just like farmland, wasn't it? It was just like filthy.
1: If I had remarked on the smell, some reviewer would probably say something to the effect of like, no one really thought anything of the smell. So there's really, it's just a, in some ways you just have to endure all these little arrows, these little arrows. yes.
0: But you know, but on the whole, the book has been uh, well-reviewed, reviewed uh, reviewed in great places. you got a great New Yorker review. You've been on Seth Meyers. Yeah, um, which I have I've said on Twitter, but I want to say on this show, like kudos to him for having uh, literary uh, authors on his show. It's I've just, been
1: seeing that happen. His devotion to it is is fantastic, and I, the you know the whole team there is really into it. And what I love about it also is that they are really into fiction. They're they're not as yet scheduling nonfiction guests. Hmm. They are really committed to serious literary fiction, and I applaud that. There's something incredible about that.
0: Well, I want to ask you a little bit more about this experience because it's an experience that I think uh, most authors have not had. Going on national television on a talk show, it might be something that to some uh, would seem unnerving. You know, you're showing up, you're going to be on camera. <laughs> what was it like? For, first of all, how did it happen?
1: The the producers, the, Seth Meyers' team loved my book. How so did they get it?
0: Your publicist submitted
1: it? or I my my sense of it is that my publicist submitted it okay that I was pitched to them but i think the the kind of uh the the process has a a certain amount of cloak around it that they prefer sure you know
0: you get the call
1: right they didn't tell me how they chose me in other words right so and you didn't ask. they just right they just <laughs> they just issued the invitation but that's fantastic <laughs> yes. and so
0: you get um, obviously you're excited this is good for you good for your book mm-hmm. you show up green room were you, were you nervous or is this something you felt comfortable
1: doing i had received media training oh so for this no for for sort of everything so that i wouldn't You know, come out on the road and and just flail or hum a lot or you know all those kinds of things. So it's or say um a lot. (laughs) So it's it's a thing that it's a thing that still exists. It was a great compliment to get it because it, it says we believe that people will want to talk to you. You know, and the 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 guy that Houghton set me up with. Uh, is, he's an old champ at it. What did he teach? He taught me everything from... It was was essentially a a two-and-a-half-hour interview where he just kept asking me questions of all of the different kinds. So there's the open question, the sort of more precise question, the, you know, he just, he asked me all these different kinds of questions. And then he underlined all of my best stories, which is a thing that I think I noticed that also the, the Seth Meyers team did also. So there was like a, a pre, a pre-show phone call where I spoke to one of the producers and, and then when I showed up, that producer ran through, you know, what they felt were the, the highlights. And then, so then you go on the air a little prepared in that sense. It's still pretty spontaneous, but They've said to you, you know, we think these are the most interesting stories that we're going to be focused on when you get out there. So just to, just so you know. Well, yeah, yeah, like you're not completely blindsided. No, and I, I think, you know, that's... I believe this is fairly standard for... I mean, not that I've been on so many TV shows, but... This is just the tip of the iceberg. I think, <laughs> uh, I think the, the... The Green Room is... It's a relaxed atmosphere. You know, I had my mom and stepdad there and I was able to have a little bit of bourbon, some cocaine. Relax. It was good. <laughs> As one does. Coffee, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, coffee. Yes. And uh, I had a brief visit to the makeup room for some very light, Adjustments, And then, you know, and they ask you, do you need anything steamed? Do you, you know, they're very, they're just, it's show business. It's show business. They want it to go right. Yeah. So, it, and they were incredibly thorough. And I, I felt, I felt very relaxed in many ways by the preparations because I just thought, okay, I, I know everything that I should know. Cause I think they are also probably aware that for a civilian like myself, who has been essentially not on TV for the whole time that I was working on the novel, (laughs) that that moment could be potentially a little intense because writers are not, they're not used to that kind of attention. But I think, you know, what's great about the show is that maybe, maybe we will be because if, as long as they keep doing it, then more and more of us, be going on there, and then, and then I think over time it won't seem so crazy that you got picked. It will feel a little less like a lottery. Yeah, I mean, because right, right now
0: to get on TV, it's like, oh my god, a writer. It's sort of <laughs> sad that it's such a big deal.
1: You know, it's like Haley's Comet. This <laughs> little, little, but you know, that's I suppose that's that's America. But what's great about it is that this is America too. This is like a good thing that's happening in America is that this show is is taking this kind of stance with, with fiction. So it's, so it's not just Oprah alone anymore in that, in the Oprah field. Well, and and now she has some company. She has,
0: well, and it's a reversion because yeah. the truth is that back in the sixties and seventies on the tonight show, Norman Mail, you know, there was all the, the sure. Ben and surf
1: yeah. made a, uh, quite a, 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 good business for random house, uh, bringing books on television. Yeah. Well, well, hopefully
0: there's going to be more of it. So let's talk about you. Sure. Uh, Where are you from originally?
1: I am, I was born in Rhode Island. My dad was a oceanography student at URI and my mom was a home ec teacher at the time.
0: What does an oceanographer do?
1: Study of the, just like deep sea study of ocean life and and currents. And I, I believe, I mean, I'm I realized that I actually never really asked him about it. I just sort of knew that he was out <laughs> on the ocean a lot. <laughs> Isn't it um, strange how? Lo- I mean,
0: I feel the same way about my dad. Like, yeah, I don't really know what the fuck he did. I mean, I know what his job was, but it was like never really got into the nitty gritty of it.
1: As a kid, you're so you're so tuned to them coming home that you almost don't even want to know about what they do when they're not with you because it's it's like a a jealousy thing. Like, I don't want to know about that thing you do. You know, right. and then you know, later you want to know my dad, well, he was on the tech tie 2 underwater living experiment. So he was basically like, uh, what, what is that? That's where a team of people lived underwater and did experiments in this underwater home. Oh, okay. Kind of like the invert, like the, the opposite of the space station, essentially like, a, well, sort of, I mean, but they these were, uh, these, these environments actually were models for, that they helped get get us into space. Oh really. Okay. So a lot there was a lot of there was a certain amount of competition between the the oceanauts and the astronauts as the back then and the the sense that NASA was just taking everything that all the tech that they were coming together with and using it to go into space and getting all the glory. It's I mean li-
0: the space is a little bit sexier than the ocean, though. In terms of like what we've explored, we've explored a fraction of what's beneath the sea. I mean, there's so much that we have no idea.
1: Yeah. I think that's the, that's really the thing is that space seems sexy, but it's time for the ocean to be sexy. We need to really make the ocean sexy. sexy. (laughs) Yeah. We, I think we treat the ocean a lot like our moms. We just think that they'll always, it'll always be there and we don't have to do anything for it and we can leave our stuff there and she'll take care of it and. You know that's that's really bad it's like a not not a good way, plus
0: the ocean is here like I don't I think space exploration's very interesting, I think astronomy and knowing like these gravitational waves that Einstein's theory just being proven last week that should be more thrilling to me than it probably is just because of my minimal understanding, but I get a little frustrated by like uh this thought of like colonizing Mars, like have you looked at Mars like? I know I talk I've talked to an author on this show who wants to be one of the early colonizers, so I know people have different opinions about this, but to me it's just it looks like a hellscape. If it were another earth and it were some Edenic paradise with fresh water and lush vegetation, I might be more keen on visiting. But I don't want to go like live in a place where I gotta wear like a compression suit and it's like seventy thousand degrees below zero and there's no veg you know. I
1: don't know. I'm I'm pretty fascinated by Elon Musk's idea of colonizing Mars and his reasons for it. You know, the idea that earth should be more than a one planet, or sorry, that the idea that humanity should be more than a, a one planet proposition that will last longer if, if we colonize other planets, that's an, that's an interesting idea. Um, I, I think part of what is probably going to be difficult is that he wants from what I've read in interviews, he wants, uh, he's looking for people who will settle it and basically be willing to do a lot to sacrifice to be there, but also who can afford to pay to go. Right, And that I think is, you know, America's rich right now are not, the the settler kind. <laughs>
0: I was going to say, you think it's bad to be on like a commercial flight? Wait till you're on that flight to Mars. You think your fellow passengers are annoying now? Right. That's going to be an ugly trip.
1: Martian Whole Foods is going to be a fucking nightmare. <laughs> we know
0: it. Um, okay, so Rhode Island childhood. it yes. Sa- sounds like your dad. It sounds
1: like your dad is a really smart guy. He was. It wasn't even his first uh, advanced degree. He had. He had been an engineer on the Saturn V rocket engine, had gone to Pomona, gotten an offer for a job, at a little company called Texas Instruments that he turned down huh. uh, in order to go off to to, to do oceanography. And he, he was doing that as a part of and eventually entering the family business. His dad's business uh, was a fisheries business. And he was doing things later on that I suppose was an outgrowth of that research where he, he designed a commercial squid trap, for example, or also, what was there? There was some, I'll think of it in a little bit. There was, there was another kind of thing like that. He, he was always kind of doing these incredible science nerd things that I, that I loved Like he had a. He had a. He and another friend of his they were trying to prove that, you could eat all these things in the ocean that you that a lot of people didn't think you could eat. So he and they went to a bar and they had like a, they had a food chain eat off where they ate their way up the, the ocean food chain, (laughs) (laughs) to, (laughs) to prove it. And. So he he was he was. Very smart. Very adventurous uh, taught taekwondo to put himself through engineering school so what he's like a black belt or yeah he was he was a he was a black belt he actually in connecticut he had to register as a deadly weapon my god under the laws of the time he's
0: building squid traps <laughs> if he can kill you with his bare hands who is this man is he still with us
1: no he oh. he died in unfortunately he died in the 80s oh he did yes what happened so, uh, car accident yeah. Really horrible. I'm sorry. Thank you. And how old were you? I was 16 when he died. Oh, so it was, it was a pretty traumatic episode in my life. Yeah. Did you think that it,
0: uh, factored into you becoming a writer? Like, were you writing at that point in your life or was it something that like you started doing as a coping mechanism or something in the aftermath?
1: Well, I, I mean, my first story that I wrote was a way of working through some of the grief so there is that but I think people were always telling me that I should be a writer that was one of these things it wasn't I was never the guy that that people were telling not to write that's not my story my story was that people were telling me you should be a writer and I was going yeah okay you know like yeah. just because when you I think when you have a talent you don't think much of it because you didn't you didn't do anything it's something that Arrives, you know. So you you take it for granted. You think that it's not a big deal, or you try to downplay it because maybe it makes you uncomfortable. For people to focus on it, I think, you know. The I had a very funny moment happen where (laughs) I was waiting on Doctor Ruth Westheimer, and in high school? No, like this is years later. So I'm I'm like, it's after my MFA. I'm a waiter in a steakhouse working on my first novel. It's a lunch shift. It's a busy lunch shift at the steakhouse in Midtown, Morton's of Chicago, that chain. Sure. So I'm in a you know white shirt, black bow tie, black pants, black shoes, black apron, running around. And she's seated at my station table for one, Dr. Ruth. And by, for
0: those listening who uh, don't know who she is, <laughs> she's the famous sex therapist. Correct.
1: So <laughs> I... So I'm sailing by her table and her steak has been served. She's, you know, cutting into her filet or whatever it was. And, and she pauses and she says to me, sort of puts her finger out and I, I stop and she says, you're not a waiter, are you? (laughs) And, And I said, excuse me, I said, is there, is there something wrong with the lunch, with your service or, and she said, no, I mean, it's not like, it's not what you're here for. Right. You're. You're a writer, aren't you? And it was such an uncanny moment because I thought I tried to think like, did I give some sort of super literary menu presentation or, you know, I really could not figure out for the life of me why, why this had happened. It it was one of those moments like in a bad movie about being a writer where you have a moment with like the magical old lady. Dr. Ruth saw (laughs) through you.
0: She's seasoned to my soul.
1: (laughs) But it was also, you know, at the time, because, you know, waiting tables is a shitty existence, or it can be at times. Uh, at the time, it also kind of was this beautiful moment where I thought, oh, I am I hide less than I think, or something. Or
0: just like, I got to do this. Like, I'm on the right track. And... Yeah.
1: She was just really clairvoyant. Wow. That's I think, a great story. Thank you. Yeah. It's... Uh, but you know, the moments like that are, are also part of what I was trying to write about in the Queen of the Night—that feeling of of something arriving in your life that seems to ha- point a finger in a particular direction, and then you have the choice, or so you think. You know, do I go in that direction? Do I not? And and it's why it's why the the plot is made in a sense out of a chain of coincidences because you know there I I. I'm thinking of a few, you know, I've had some great reviews. I've had some people quibble about the coincidence thing. And I think that that is actually the topic. <laughs> like uh, That was, uh, you know, the whole point was, what if you took opera plots literally, you know? Because we, th- we see them, we think, oh, that's so crazy. And, and yet the idea of... The, I've got to
0: confess, I've never seen an opera. You've never
1: seen an opera. Yeah. Okay, so... They're, the, they're typically incredibly high stakes dramas. Sure. You know, uh, someone is not just someone that you fall in love with, but they may be secretly your sister, or they may be the sister of the man who kills your mother, or there's always this kind of incredibly hyper compressed sense of of the stakes and the idea is that they're playing out lessons that the gods want us to learn from because of how, how bad they are. And so when was the first time you saw
0: an opera? Oh,
1: I, I mean, my dad and my mom loved opera. I
0: thought you were going to say my dad sang opera,
1: but my dad also did. He would sing opera around the house. He was one of those guys. Really? Yeah. There's, I met actually, I met someone who, his dad also did the same thing. We kind of had this... Sang bond- well? Bonding moment. My dad sang pretty well, yeah. Can I you think- sing? I can sing. It's true. You have the mic. Oh, not, not <laughs> opera, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. I have not trained like that. But... So I, so I remember him singing a lot of this around the house when I was... Growing up as a kid, he would sing it while he mowed the lawn, or... You know, it was kind of funny. Sometimes we would act like the noise hurt us but you know it's one of my better memories of him and and then when I was in a professional boys choir as a kid I sang in Carmen and Tosca in the qu- choruses for both and I guess I was probably 12 13 years old when we did Carmen and maybe 14 when we did Tosca and I loved them. I absolutely loved them I thought it was amazing just the the way in which the drama was so consuming
0: well and I'll say too you know having not seen uh, an opera performed live I have uh, seen an opera singer perform live and I'm I'm remembering it now because I was at a poetry reading and it was in one of these funky like loft art spaces in Los Angeles and uh, they were like, and now uh, so-and-so, and I, I forget her name, but they were like, she's going to sing, uh, you know, sing for you guys. I had no idea. I was sitting on the floor near the front. She started singing. I cried. Yeah. Like like tears came to my eyes <laughs> because it was like, it, it's a really powerful yeah. uh, sound. Uh, like it's, I just remember, I couldn't believe how much sound she was making mm. from her body. And uh, yeah. when you're right there and it's right there in your face, like. I didn't know how to respond you know it's not that i was weeping but just like a tear rolled you know? yeah
1: it's uh it's it's really extraordinary and that that was also part of the obsession then and part of the obsession that turned into the novel was trying to trying to write about that the way in which opera can make you cry even when you're not expecting it at all or you or don't it, know what
0: they're saying or you may <laughs> not even know what they're saying yes <laughs> Uh, yeah. did you thank Dr. Ruth and the acknowledgements <laughs> or is this your moment to thank Dr. Ruth?
1: I, you know, I should send her a copy of the novel. You should. That's is she I still do. with us? She is. She's yeah. got to be a hundred years old. Still with us. And actually she might really enjoy the book. Yeah? So oh. I should send her a copy. that 's um, a great idea. Yeah. Why
0: not? Right. And, uh, I mean, especially <laughs> from your waiter. <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: Uh, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for pulling me aside all those years ago. So it's a great story.
0: Um, <laughs> So, okay, so you leave home to go to school. Yes. And where did you go?
1: Well, so I should say, you know, we traveled around a bit when I was a kid. We went to, we lived in, uh, in Guam, Kauai, and truck. And then we moved back to Maine. When I say back to Maine, I should say my mom's family has been from Maine for hundreds of years. Okay. And... So my, my father and my mother decided that the Portland, greater Portland area would be a good place to raise their kids. So off we went. And starting at age six, I grew up in Maine. And when I left school, for school at the age of 18, we had stayed there for the majority of my childhood. It's a and great I, town, Portland, Maine. It, it is. I, I actually just finished a, an essay about going off to college. It was Wesleyan University is where I went to. And pretty much right away, people <laughs> didn't believe that I was from Maine. And they'd say things like, so did you go to Bronx Science or Stuyvesant? And I would say, I went to Cape Elizabeth High School. And they'd say, where is that? And I would say, it's, a, it's in Cape Elizabeth. Maine. Wait, so they
0: thought you were from New York?
1: They did. And then they would say, no, no, really, like, Bronx Science, you're not from Maine. That's, like, which one are you from? What was it about you? Uh, I think... People did not expect someone who was mixed race to be from Maine. I also, my father had been a linguist as well, among the other things I know. Dear God. (laughs) It's a lot to live up to. Yeah. So he, so he spoke English with a really flat accent. He He had consciously trained an accent out of his English because he knew that it would be held against him. So he didn't want that. And so the only accent I heard growing up was my mom's accent, which my mom has a pretty strong main accent, but I would say it there was some way in which it I, it somehow didn't transmit. so
0: no, I get that my parents have an accent and I, I didn't get it. You, you know?
1: imitate your parents as a way to be close to them right That's like a it's a thing you do. So I... <laughs> for better or worse and I I think the you know so there was, so there was no, the, the no accent thing I, I they also they would say things like people don't dance like that in Maine they, I think they, they thought of me as a kind of an urban sophisticate and they thought of people in Maine as a sort of you know hillbillies sure yeah hilltown people and and so that was kind of offensive but basically fine. It was strange though, because growing up in Maine, people had always actually assumed that I was not from there. So I I kept feeling like I was constantly fighting to belong, to belong to this place that I actually had really old roots in, you know, know, my mom. and
0: What is the, your father's
1: Korean? My father is a Korean immigrant. My mother's family built the first church in the state when it was the Massachusetts territory. And, we have the King George III deed, six ancestors fought in the revolution. I joined a an association recently that you can only join if an ancestor owned a tavern before the revolutionary war. So,
0: so one of your ancestors owned a tavern before <laughs> the revolutionary war. Yeah.
1: Like something like 1670. Okay. Yeah. It's not still there. That can't be. No. Okay. <laughs> I mean I wish. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> that would be really cool. Oh. Wow. That's old roots. Yeah. So, you know, when people would say to me, Go back to where you came from, my reaction was you for you first. Yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're like, my ancestors fought in the revolution. <laughs> yeah. Yours only fought in <laughs> Vietnam. Give me a break. Yeah. Um, so Wesleyan. So Wesleyan. Wesleyan you, was
1: great. I loved it i still love it it's a
0: writing at wesleyan you were writing majored in did you know that you were going to do this or did you i did uh... not
1: i went to wesleyan believing that i was going to major in art and be and draw in particular i love drawing also and yet i i did fall asleep in a drawing class and get kicked out of the major they kick you out for that (laughs) at wesleyan well, the teacher was really severe, and she had praised all of my work until then. And then after that, nothing I did was right, and she, i think she just couldn't forgive me for doing it. So, my final grade in the course was a B minus, and then that complete that prevented me from continuing into the major. Man, yeah, that's harsh. It was. It was a. It was my come to Jesus moment or whatever they call that. So well, it's one I, of those
0: fingers pointing that you were talking about. I suppose. <laughs> you know,
1: like, yeah. I, I, uh, I, I spent that summer in a kind of funk and then a friend called up and asked if he could borrow my typewriter, which I guess dates it pretty easily. And I said, sure. What do you a typewriter For
0: those of you listening, a typewriter <laughs> is a machine that people used to type with. Back in the 1980s,
1: <laughs> 90s. <laughs> yes. So he, he said, oh, I'm applying to Phyllis Rose's fiction class, and I need to type up a story. And I, I said, sure, come over, You know, no problem. And then I realized as soon as I hung up that I wanted to do it. This is a little bit of a thing with me where I don't, I don't know how I feel right away. And then I need to figure it out through these things that provide clear signals. So.
0: And I should also, it sounds also like you have a little bit of your father's uh, polymath tendencies. You know, you can (laughs) sing, you can draw, you write. Is there anything else we need to know about you? (laughs) (laughs) Do you sculpt?
1: Well, you know, I was, it's funny. I remember thinking about my childhood one day on the train to work and thinking about all like the flute lessons, the singing, the karate, the swim team. Uh, and I remember thinking, were they trying to raise Batman? And then I looked <laughs> down and I was wearing a Batman t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed they were. And then I thought, oh, so that's why you like him. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I sat down and I wrote whole short story just boom my first one and by the time he arrived it was it was done and I sent it off to the to the course to submit he took the typewriter and brought it back and I got into the course and he didn't it's sort of
0: we've never spoken <laughs> since
1: that was the end of I'm a little haunted by that actually <laughs> but it well. was like I took all of the luck out of the typewriter or something before I gave it to him that well, was your
0: typewriter. It was my typewriter. In fairness. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone deserved that luck, it was you.
1: <laughs> True. Um so that got me into the class and then and then, you know, she Phyllis Rose was incredibly encouraging to me. And and then sent me on to Kit Reed, who was likewise incredibly encouraging. And I spent the next summer at the Bennington Summer Writers Conference, which was a thing that existed before their current MFA programs situation. And that was that was where I know I was. I was pretty excited by everything that I was doing, but that was where I thought, okay, this could really be cool. You know, I I was standing in line for the keg behind Joy Williams. <laughs> I was I was watching Joyce Carol Oates write during uh, during a reading, like she had gotten some idea that I couldn't even wait to leave the reading. She was just like, so,
0: so that that's how she publishes two novels <laughs> a year. She writes while reading.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I was, I was a little scandalized because I was young and, and naive, but I, I went back to Kit Reed who, who said, oh, that's a, that's an old, that's a really good exercise actually. And I I said, what do you, what do you mean? And she said, well, the act of, of listening to a reading is so passive that as you listen, like ideas may push up in a sort of rebellion against What's happening? So you should always have a notebook just in case. And I actually have found that to be an interesting exercise, especially if you're stuck, to go to someone else's reading. Yeah, seems kind of like a shitty thing to do, but.
0: Well, I mean, as long as they don't see you writing, as
1: long as they don't like sit in the back, (laughs) don't be a distraction.
0: Yeah, no. I I mean, I I think that just like I found that like uh, reading or listening, not that you know, uh, Mm -hmm. I don't mean to sound self-serving, but like reading an interview with an author, listening to an interview with an author, or just reading in general. You know, if you're having troubles with uh, with output, try some input. It makes It seems like a basic logic. Yeah.
1: So, you know, the... That summer was a catalyst of a kind, and I, Mary Robeson in particular was the teacher who I think got through to me the most of the writers who were there that summer. And she... She helped me see, you know, what I actually had to offer. and I, Which I was? was? Well, I was trying to write stories about gay people and gay men in particular. And she was really positive about it, which in retrospect, I mean, it's sad to me, I suppose, that it was so intense, but I was having... You know, a, a kind of. I was having this sort of sense that I. I was I wasn't sure what I was doing, and she was the one who said. I feel like no one's really writing, about these people the way you're writing about them. She clarified it for she you. She clarified that. So. So that was a really. Profound. Moment for me.
0: And and how how long?
1: Like when did you come out? Oh, I had come out. I come out my. <laughs> I come out my. I come out to myself in high school. I come out in college. I. I arrived in college as a freshman. And I weighed two hundred fifteen pounds at the beginning of that year. And. by the, I joined the crew team. I lost thirty pounds and told people I was bisexual. And then I lost thirty more and t- told them I was gay. <laughs> <laughs> And then the year was uh, like it was, so basically end of freshman year, beginning of sophomore year was when I
0: okay. But so when you're writing, I guess like we, like it was a couple of years later. It wasn't like I was you were it this. wasn't like you were grappling with no, anything like no. that in the writing. And the writing was the private place where you did it. You were
1: already out and exactly okay. So, like one of the one of the worst things that I ever did to my mom. In some ways, was in high school that I had been in a gifted and talented program, and. For the the project was for for uh, for drama, so we were writing plays, and I wrote I wrote about something that happened to me over the summer of my my uh, junior year to senior year, when I went off to Georgetown University's summer session for high school juniors, and I had, a, I had an openly gay roommate, and he had a boyfriend that summer. This Really hot guy named Franco. Who Franco? I think Franco. I'm attracted was. to him. <laughs> who is this guy? He was he was really funny because he was he was so adorable and a, a little short. And we would go out to bars, and inevitably this cluster of men would form around him, like everyone. And we'd have to they'd be buying him drinks and getting him drunk, and we'd have to. <laughs> Frankie? Jaws of life him out of there, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it. So Franco was the one that summer who confronted me about being gay where he it was very it was I call it the gay John Hughes movie that he never wrote that I should probably write I guess. Yeah. But basically he you know he said I have something really important to tell you Let's go to the stairs. The stairs were where we, the dorm stairs were where we had all our important conversations that summer. Okay, which was ridiculous because anyone could listen, and if they were just standing in the <laughs> stair bar, well, you stair-o-bob. want an audience, yeah, yeah I mean, exactly.
0: We're not having these conversations for nothing.
1: So we go off there, and he says, "I, I think you're gay," and I remember being so. I was a little bit like that Ruth, Doctor Ruth moment, really. So. In the, hindsight,
0: I, I think in hindsight, Franco should have told you that you were a writer, and Doctor Ruth should have been like, "You are gay,"
1: <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. But whatever. Um, the yeah, so it, I, well, my answer was pretty spontaneous, if also a total lie. Where you know, I said, "Well, I think I'd be the first to know," and and actually, when you're gay, you're often the last to know like everybody else figures it out about you <laughs> right beforehand but in any case the that was what I wrote the play about that fall my senior year in high school and the teacher liked it so much that she submitted it to the state gifted and talented program and it became one of three plays that were chosen from across the state to be read at Portland Stage Company which was a huge honor and my whole class went in to see this play, which was effectively my coming out to them. And I didn't tell my mom that it was happening because I didn't want her to know. <laughs>
0: I was going to say she didn't sit down and, and hear this for the first time then.
1: No, nope. Okay, so it's and the, that's the thing about the closet is such a strange thing, and it has so many layers to it. And you know, it's interesting now to see. People grow up, pretty much without it, you know. Yeah. It's, it's not everyone's situation now, but it, it's increasingly a situation. I remember having to defend being closeted in high school to some high school students when I spoke to a gay straight alliance like five, six years ago, and they they could not understand it. Hmm. They, they really thought it was so strange that he didn't come out in high school.
0: Well, but you talked about everybody else knowing, and then, you know, the gay person often being the last to know, I think that that sort of dynamic extends beyond just that particular situation. Like, I think human beings can often be blind to something about themselves that everyone close to them can see, you know, and I, I am sometimes haunted by that. Like, is there something about me that people can all see but they're scared to tell me, you know, or they, they're not comfortable broaching with me, you know, and like, some weakness or some habit of thought or behavior that I have that they think might be holding me back.
1: But you know what
0: I'm saying? Like just, sure, like I think that.
1: that's the underlying structure of all literary fiction, right? Is what, the drama of seeing whether people will find out who they really are, whether they're actually the people they think they are, or whether they're the people they fear they are, or even if they find out who they actually are.
0: Do you know who you actually are?
1: <laughs> I don't. Apparently, I mean, either.
0: So okay. So you go to Iowa Writers' Workshop.
1: Yes, that was uh, that. So I, after I left Wesley, and I, I worked out in the quote-unquote real world. I don't really like saying it that way, but that's how I used to say it. You know, writing is the real world. But in any case, I. I moved to San Francisco. I worked as a bookseller by day and an AIDS activist and...
0: What, an AIDS activist? Yes. Okay. I was
1: in ACT UP and also a group called Queer Nation out in San Francisco at the time. And so we were doing a lot of direct action politics, uh, trying to change policies around the testing of AIDS drugs, the the ways in which people thought of people with AIDS, the teaching of safe sex. What, the, when what year was this? This was uh, nineteen eighty nine to ninety one. Oh wow! So the documentary
0: that was on was it on Netflix yeah. or HBO? What was it called? About this, the drugs. Oh,
1: uh, about the drugs? It was about the people who were
0: activi- You know, who were activists trying to get access. I think this to is f- David France's documentary. I think I, yeah. it was super powerful, and yeah. I'm, I've, I feel bad. I'm not, not remembering not. the name. I can.
1: I'll surreptitiously Google it. Yeah. But I mean, anyway,
0: <laughs> that period of time and that particular history, uh, I'm sad to say was not a hundred percent clear to me. Uh, despite the fact that I, I took a course on AIDS in my freshman year of college. And, and I guess I knew a little bit more than the most, but the, the struggle just to get access to medicine and the red tape that had to be cut through, uh, that was, that was incredible. You know, what people had to do simply to get, and, and I guess the, uh, the Matthew McConaughey movie, too, was sort of about the same sort of thing. The Dallas Buyers Club. How to Survive a Plague. How to Survive a Plague. Yes. Super powerful. Yeah. And, like, you know, crushingly sad, too, because a lot of these people who were on the front lines of that fight didn't make it. They Right. Know, they died before the the battle was won, essentially.
1: They did. And I think you know, I, I've i written about that some. I wrote about that in an essay I wrote for an anthology that Edmund White edited back in 1999 called uh, Loss Within Loss, where he asked all of us to write about artists or writers who had died before these drugs had become available and to try to try to take the measure of what the epidemic had really cost us in terms of the arts and writing. And that was one of the hardest essays I ever wrote. I wrote about a painter I had known who uh, who had died of it's just before the drugs became available, and you know if he'd held out even a few months longer, he might have he might have lived. Ugh. And at the time, that history was hard to hard to make available to people. In some ways, we were we were trying to become part of the historical record through these actions we were doing, just so that people would pay attention to us and what we were trying to to talk about, and so. Mm-hmm to the extent that it isn't still talked about is also a marker of how successful we were with it. You know, I remember becoming really skeptical about everything from, you know, the police to the, the news to structure of the country, the whole, it was a real education in the place I really lived in. It was profoundly meaning America. Yeah. Right. It was, you know, you, you, you go with some friends to an amusement park, and two of them are drag queens, and they don't want to let you in because two of them are drag queens. And and then, while they won't let you in, and you're sort of protesting that they won't let you in, all the tourists want to take pictures with the drag queens. <laughs> We're a hit with the people. But because say. one of your friends has a shaved head, Right, the police scanner... When they when they call the police says that it's skinheads who oh my God. are at the front gate of the amusement park. Which amusement park? It was something like USA something or other. Great uh, Six Flags. Six Flags. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, it was it was just kind of this. I just I remember just watching the tourists that day with the drag queens, and I just wanted to say to the operators like. You guys should get drag queens. <laughs> I was gonna say, <laughs> These people guys might be like... really popular. Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> say. We're
0: a hit with the people. Your shitty park <laughs> would have better attendance. You guys would uh, dress it up a little bit. So wow, okay, yeah. so but that I mean that's a formative experience politically for you that time in San Francisco because I know
1: yeah it was like it having was. known
0: you, having followed you on social right. media, like you have a very astute political awareness.
1: Um, Thank you. That was where it happened. That was that was my education. My or the found the beginning of my education, you know. It's a, you have to keep educating yourself your sure. whole life. It's not something that's done. But that was that was a sensibility was formed there for sure.
0: And in terms of gay rights, in terms of um, you know all of all that that encompasses, like the progress that has been made over the past twenty to thirty years. Uh, how do you feel about it? Did you expect it? to be like this? Oh, I, I
1: never... I never expected it. It's... I, I had hopes, certainly. I certainly committed to those hopes. You know, I, I remember working on Out Magazine during the startup, and we were essentially presenting to advertisers a package of how attractive... Uh, lGbt customers were to to them essentially, and uh, you know i would I would joke about it as being the the strategy of like don't kill us, we'll shop <laughs> 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 we're really good at shopping, don't kill us <laughs> um uh, but that's actually sort of the that was the m l like we'll be good capitalists, just let us live um and and it was it was sort of disgusting and also it's sad that it worked to a, to a large extent. you know like I mean the magazine is still around. it's it, like many public it's gone through many identities and but I think there's a larger sense of, of who we are as people available now through all these different modes. Well,
0: and I was gonna say you know like social justice is never it's not linear doesn't follow a linear path and like sometimes you make weird trades along the way to get to the point where these things that were once peripheral or peripheral peripheral and uh i don't know off limits in terms of the public discourse inch their way closer to the mainstream because of a magazine like out which you know is able to exist because advertisers realize that you can shop you see what i'm saying like you make weird trades along the way it's not ever a completely clean process or
1: it's hard to understand how deadly it was at the time. How many attacks there were on LGBT people in San
0: Francisco, or just you mean nationally? In San
1: Francisco, in New York, nationally, you know the the AIDS crisis had had brought it had sort of, I think, given people, you know by the by the way in which it was sort of tied as a punishment on gays, uh, the idea was with a lot of homophobes, it was just kind of like, well, then let's just get rid of them all, you know? And that led to a lot of violence.
0: Well, and, and it's like, the thing is, is that there was a lot of uh, homophobia and awful behavior that was really overt in terms of that sort of, you know, language and uh, belief system, but it was also um, passive. There was also really passive, aggression towards uh, the gay community when it came to the AIDS crisis because, you know, politically it was just like they might not have been um, shouting epithets into a microphone, but they would just sit on their hands and not do anything.
1: There was a piece recently that ran something like 15 times that Reagan laughed at the AIDS crisis. Something really horrible where it just was like (laughs) holistical of how of all of Reagan's shitty moments on air about, and in public about the AIDS crisis.
0: it's a significant mark of shame on his record. Yeah. So uh, before I let you go, I wanna ask you a little bit about Iowa. I mean, I've have talked to a lot of writers uh, on this program who went to the workshop. I've heard various things. Um, Curious to know what your uh, experience of it was.
1: For me, it was something I applied to with a great deal of cynicism. 'Cause I sort of believed all of the myths about the place in the way that most people do when they when they don't know a place. So I believed that it would, you know, try to machine the originality out of me. I believed that everyone there was the same kind of writer. Just like lots of dumb, wrong things I believed about it. And <laughs> You know and I, and i I've written about this in an essay called My Parade that starts with me saying, you know my curse is that I now have to field all of those myths and all that cynicism from other people for the rest of <laughs> for the rest of my you should have by the existence. way, you you
0: should be close to having a really good collection of essays done because you have written a lot of good ones.
1: Well, thank you. I actually am working on a collection of essays. Oh, I was going to say,
0: because so. that, essay, that essay that you wrote about uh, when you worked in catering and you were uh, at yes. w- William Buckley's, right? wonderful, you know, uh, super, super thank interesting. You.
1: Thanks. I, I think the collection is going to be called either Visitor or How to Write an Autobiographical Novel.
0: Or called, like, No, I Actually Am From Maine <laughs> by Alexander Chee. I'm
1: from Maine, bitches. <laughs> Uh, I I think you know thank you the so the yeah for me it was kind of a the fairy tale where the thing that you try to get somewhat cynically suddenly takes you in and uh, and then suddenly you're in love with it and it's so it was a kind of it's a lot of eating crow really happily you know happy to be wrong, happy to be. You know, studying with Deborah Eisenberg and Dennis Johnson and Marilyn Robinson and James Allen McPherson, just to name a few. You know, to go to readings where I could hang out with Margaret Atwood afterward, or uh, James Merrill.
0: You've had some incredible mentors, or had like exposure to some incredible I've, writers.
1: I've had some really incredible writing teachers. It's true, and I, I know that I, I'm. I'm lucky in that respect. And I could probably do a a book that was just, you know, a series of memoirs just about them, uh, which I I have also thought about. But anyway, it's...
0: And you have the collection of essays in the works and you have another novel in the works. Right. Those are the the two. I think so. You think so?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I have ideas for other novels too, but again, it's the question of, What's the most urgent and what? You're
0: like, dude! I just published a 550-page <laughs> novel that took me 15 years to write. Can you just let me have my moment in the sun?
1: Actually, I really want to publish another book really quickly. because yeah. I, I just want to take the curse out of it.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you will. I really do. And you Thank know, like different books, different works of art have different gestation processes. You know, I mean, this one d- needed a, a needed some time in the oven. Maybe the next one won't. But uh, I don't think you can force it too much. I mean, maybe you can a little bit, but I think too much of that and uh, you can start to, to muck up the works.
1: The poet Jory Graham, who was at Iowa when I was there, she used to say to her students that there are poems that took a very long time, and they it was like they created a channel in you, and then, and then it meant that there was other work that would sometimes arrive very quickly, very suddenly, and so I'm hoping that that's true.
0: Well, I wish you luck with it. I congratulate you, Thank and you. Uh, I look forward to whatever's next.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Okay, folks, there you go. Alexander Chi, And uh, his new novel is called The Queen of the Night, available from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You can find Alex online at thequeenofthenight.com. I think it's The Queen of the Night. It's either thequeenofthenight or queenofthenight.com. I think it's thequeenofthenight.com. Just to be tedious about it. You can Google him, too. Alexander Chi. He's also on Twitter where his handle is at Alexander Chi. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the theme song music of this program and the band Stereo Total. The transitional music today provided by Curtis Mayfield. RIP. Thank you. Off of the Superfly album. A timeless classic. uh this podcast has its own app did you know that the other people podcast has its own official app the app is free get the app it's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program if you don't have the app you're missing something get the app download the app get it on your device you have the app on for instance your phone and uh when that happens the most recent episode automatically uploads to the app you don't have to do anything the latest episode just magically appears there You can favorite your favorite episodes. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. And then if you want to, you can sign up for premium. That gets you access to everything for as little as 75 cents a month. So here's how it works. You get the most recent 50 episodes of the program for free. The most recent 50 for free, always right there on the app waiting for you free. And then if you want access to the other 350 some odd episodes, you just sign up for premium 75 cents a month, support the program. Imagine me dancing to this song. Is that troubling? Uh yeah, 400 episodes in the can. What is this? What is this that I've done? I think, you know, to be honest, a lot of the times uh, I'm talking to you guys and I don't mean this in any way to diminish my communication with my listeners, but I think I am talking to my kids. I like the idea of having these available to them, especially like a long time from now after I'm gone or even grandkids. What, what does this reveal about me? I will concede that that question does haunt me from time to time because there's really no way of hiding when you do 400 episodes of a show and you record yourself in conversation and doing monologues 400 times eventually the real you or the essence of the real you or some version that's very close to the real you emerges and there's no hiding all of your faults everything the mess that is me is available in the, in this body of work somehow i'm sorry Please remember that Lavoisier was guillotined in the reign of terror and that Wagner insisted that Christ wasn't a Jew. That's it for now. Uh, Thank you once again to Alexander Chi. Thanks to Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Sign up for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club if you get a chance. Huge thanks, as always, and with greater emphasis today on episode 400 to you guys for listening and for supporting the show. Curtis Mayfield Might seem odd that a normcore Caucasian dad from the Midwest would be this to Curtis Mayfield but I truly am a huge Curtis Mayfield fan 400 episodes It's weird <laughs>